Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Tony Wolfe, a martial artist and author, antiquarian and lecturer who I've known for many years. Um, he is perhaps best known in our circles for books like the Bartitsu Compendium, uh, which is a very thorough study of the um, late 19th century art of Bartitsu, which I'm sure Tony will be talking a lot about later. And also the book Ancient Swordplay, which looks at the very first, or as far as, as, far as we know, reconstruction of historical martial arts back again at the end of the um, 19th century. So he has many other books, which I hope we'll get into, but you should not miss the Suffragitsu graphic novels. And his most recent book is The Life and Fantastical Crimes of spring Jack. And if that isn't an excellent title for a book, I don't know what it is. So without further ado, Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Guy. It's a pleasure to be here. That's nice to see you again. So just to orient everyone, whereabouts in the world are you, Tony? In Chicago, of all places, Chicago, Illinois, in the USA. And uh, you're not from there originally, though. No, how could you tell? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I relocated here after a period of um, traveling around the world a lot. Um, but no, originally from New Zealand, um, from Wellington, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. and, uh, during my travels, I, uh, during the early 2000s, I, I started to travel pretty extensively to the point where I was on the road typically at least six months out of a given year. During That's one of the travels, right. yes, it was. Um, too old for that now. Um, but during one of those travels, I met a young lady in Chicago and we fell in love and got married and uh, ended up living here. Well, so that's the best reason to live in a place, isn't it? It kind of is. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So according to your bio, you began training martial arts in 1978, which is even longer than me, sir. And there aren't many people in our in our sphere who can say that. So specifically, you were doing Taekwondo, and I know you've trained just about everything else as well. So what have been some of your favorite styles and what drew you to them? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, favorite styles. I love Capoeira. I have not had a I've not never had a chance to study that in depth or for any extended period of time. Um, but it is a joyous art, the art of the free. They used to call it. Um, uh, Tamo Taiha, which I'll need to explain because no one outside of New Zealand knows where that is, mm -hmm. and that is one of the traditional Maori martial arts. Um, okay. And uh, the way I look at it is. Every martial art is kind of a microcosm of the culture that created it, um, in some cases of, of the personalities of the people who created it. And sure. Taiha is this, has this fascinating ritual component. Um, it's very effective. Um, it's difficult to describe the weapon. The Taiha, um, New Zealanders know about it, at least culturally, if not you know, technically in, in the sense of martial arts, but... Um, it's a kind of a um, combination staff and spear or staff and short spear weapon. Mm -hmm. um, and the art itself is a very highly efficient method of hand-to-hand -hand combat. But um, what really drew me to that was, was the ritual and the poetry of, of, the, um, of the way that style is structured. Um, okay. Feel free to go into the weeds. What... what 
what are we talking about? I mean, I've, I've been to New Zealand and I saw a display of um, a Maori warrior who had a like a four foot long wooden weapon and he was brandishing it, not too dissimilarly to a longsword, yeah. but there's clearly lots of display elements in there as well, like facial expressions and things like that. So is that is that what we're talking about? Four foot would be on the short side for a taiha, but almost certain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. um, I mean, very few people know, but the Maori um, had a, a fantastically detailed um, system of martial arts, you know, all sorts of weapons that people have never heard of, um, mm-hmm. many of which, unfortunately, uh, have just been forgotten other than the sort of the general form of, of what the weapon was. But um, at the time, and this is the frustrating thing for me, I was interested, became interested in kind of martial arts exotica when I was was very young, when I was a young teenager. Spent a lot of time um, in the the dojang and the dojos and so forth, but about equal time in the libraries. And was very quickly drawn to the the exotic and the unusual, and it occurred to me at the age of about 13 or something. um, Here is, you know, I'm living in New Zealand. I know that um, pre-European contact Maori cultures had all manner of, of weapons because I'm familiar with you know, the, the, the basics of them, the, you know, the use, ceremonial use in haka and that sort of thing. Sure. But um, clearly they also had systematized methods of, of hand-to-hand fighting. So what can we find out about them? And I went into, you know, did the research that I could decades before the internet, um, found some interesting stuff written by ethnographers um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, but all of this was just at the time, or just really just prior to the time, when the various tribal styles that had, in fact, persisted during the, the rather dark years of the early and mid-20th century, um, when you know, the, the cultural thrust was towards assimilation. Right. But, but some of the tribal styles had, in fact, been maintained to, to various levels of, of sophistication. And... Um, at the time that I became interested in it, that was all still basically underground. At the time, once I was in my early 20s, it was just starting to sort of appear in, a, in any sort of public arena. In, in public. Mm-hmm. And that was when I, I first got my training with a guy called um, Steve Hepperi, Tippany Hepperi, um, in, who was that? In Hastings in the Hawke's Bay. And... Unfortunately, I didn't know of anyone who was teaching the art in Wellington, which is where I was living. Got a little bit more training here and there over the years. But really since then, since the um, mid-late 1980s, the art has become um, organized kind of on the same model as, as, say, Asian martial arts. So that nowadays, if, if, if I was that age now, I would really be able to go along to a local marae, which is the word for a... Uh, meeting area, mm-hmm. uh, sort of like a community complex. And there'd be a good chance that I'd be able to take Taiha classes, which is an opportunity that I would sorely have loved when I was in my early 20s. I can imagine. Okay, so do you practice that at all? Or is that no I, longer? I haven't for years. It, it was one of the styles that we used as reference for um, some of the Lord of the Rings stuff, actually. Okay. The use of the elvish two-handed sword. I didn't. We'll talk about the Lord of the Rings business later on, but um, we very deliberately didn't um, adopt 
technique or sort of stylistic markers from any real-world martial arts when we were developing that stuff. But we did have a Taihai expert come in um, as what's called movement reference. And so okay. we got some of his work on, um, on video. But um, I was talking before about the ritual and the poetry. And it's just, yeah, you, you will have seen if you saw somebody doing a, a ceremonial display with a Taihai. There's a lot of a lot of flash and flourish, yes, to to that aspect of the style because it's so it was so thoroughly interwoven into the into the the fabric of pre-European contact Maori culture. Yeah, honestly, and, it reminded me a little bit of um, the Asalti in Bolognese uh, swordsmanship done with a two-handed sword, which is basically the display that you do to establish your kind of moral authority or, or your, basically or to scare your opponent before the actual fencing happens. That's a, that's a very apt parallel. Yeah. And exactly the same in a, a, perhaps a slightly more ritualistic um, context, but um, it served exactly, exactly the same function in pre-European Maori society where your skill with the taiaha um, in terms of your mastery of it, the sense of uh, your ability to manipulate the object in space mm-hmm. um, was Effectively, a, a mark of your and therefore your tribe's mana, which is your sort of spiritual status, and and but because there's this there's this sort of um, animistic thread running throughout um, Maori culture at that time, you have um, actions which make no combative sense in, in during when you're using the weapon ceremonially, like there are various poses where you lift a taiaha up. So that it's frustrating because unless you've seen a tire, this is not to make a lot of sense. But um, the spear-like end, basically, it's it's a so typically five five and a half foot long quarterstaff-like weapon, um, ovular in cross section, so it's um, very easy to hold yeah. on. But it has kind of an edge. One end, which I think is called the row, um, has a spatulate a sort of a broad spatulate and sharpened, um, almost spade-like um, mm-hmm. diameter. The other end is is um, a protruding tongue, and people will have seen um, athletes and so on performing the Māori haka, and you'll notice that they often um, stick their tongues out very dramatically and widen yeah. their eyes. And the this, chap I saw did that. Yeah, yeah. This is pukana. This is um, a defiance, gesture of defiance. Sometimes thought, although this goes way back into into mythology, but it's sometimes thought to be an imitation of um, Tumatauinga, who is the god of war, sometimes manifested as a lizard. And so you have the, the flickering. Ah, okay. Interesting. Um, but the the, spatula, the, the, um, the protruding tongue, which forms the point of the spear effectively, there's an ornate carving typically separating the tongue from the, the shaft. Right, and the um, the carving is a stylized set of eyes, so it's as if there's a sort of a, a style, highly stylized face with this large, sharpened tongue protruding from it. There are postures in, in ceremonial taiha use where you lift that up so that the weapon's vertically held um, up, upright and next to your head, and this posture makes no combative, combative sense at all. But in animistic symbology, what you're doing is holding the tongue of your weapon up to your ear so that the eyes, which are able to see in all directions because they're 
essentially it's cut so that they, they face in all four directions so that the eyes are able to warn you of danger. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And, and you know, you can go on a number of the footwork patterns are named after, um, after the way birds move and that sort of thing. Like the Tui is a very sort of... Okay, just, just as an aside, I'm going to find a decent picture of a tire hat and I'm going to stick it in the show notes so people listening who want a visual can, can see sure. what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, there, um, there's a lot of um, good footage these days of um, people using the weapon um, to fight. In fact, there was a reality TV show of all things. Um, oh, my God. Several years. Did they get everywhere? Yeah, um, but I was very impressed with it. it I this right. used well after I'd um, left New Zealand, but um, I can't recall the title right now. But um, yeah, and it was set up. We had um, various champions representing different parts of the country. The styles tend to go by tribe, right? And yeah, and they had these people doing various tests of endurance and and that sort of thing. And then the climax of each episode is a, t- a full contact tire half fight. Wow. Yeah, you know, they're wearing protective equipment, obviously. Yeah, of course. Facsimiles. But that, that's interesting because it shows the, um, you know, in, in martial arts, there's, there's the, the aphorism or the, the saying about how, how you train is how you fight. Mm-hmm. And in what my observation, like in Italian martial arts, um, the Italian folk styles and so on, certainly also in Taiha, but also in Capoeira and others, that doesn't really hold true because the the martial style, um, yes, it's 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 a fighting technique, but also it serves a, you know a large number of other functions. It's a kind of initiation into traditionally manhood, and it serves other social functions and so on as well. And so you get these ceremonial elements, which you wouldn't attempt to pull off in a fight, but the fact that you're able to perform them, the fact that you have the the strength and the coordination and so on to perform the the uh, more acrobatic or more ceremonial aspects, I think would stand you in good stead when you you resort to the uh, the more directly efficient basics in an actual fight. Sure. Yeah, and, and most martial arts do have some element of you know display or um, yeah, because well, a lot of human violence is about displays. Yes, yeah. So we, we see them everywhere. I mean, military uniforms of the 18th century being a great example. European military uniforms. It's like that's not camouflage. You can't sneak from cover to cover in that, but you can certainly look the part. Yeah, precisely. And I mean, there are entire cultures where. Um, you know the the cultural enactment of of war is basically a ceremony. There are um, tribal groups in Papua New Guinea who have been fighting ceremonial battles for you know decades, centuries, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll spend all year preparing their incredibly ornate feathered headdresses and and warrior costumes and so forth. But the actual battle, um, they will fight with basically with less, less efficient weapons. Like they won't use their hunting spears and arrows. They'll use, um, well, blunt, blunts basically. Right. Now, it's still dangerous. People still get wounded. People still occasionally die. But the aim of the war in that context isn't to kill each other so much as to um, to ritually reinforce your own tribe's strength and, and um, cohesiveness. Yeah. It's like like the medieval concept of prowess. Yes, yeah, precisely. Yeah, and if it wasn't actually dangerous, there wouldn't be any bravery component. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah, kind of a, a a pressure valve, I guess. Pressure release. Sure. Okay. So you trained some tire heart. You've trained some other things. Um, somebody once told me that you did some pro wrestling back in the day. I did. Yes. Um, <laughs> which which is, I guess, a uh, well, as, as I see it, like pro wrestling is, is a very high level kind of stage combat stuntman sort of thing where you have a combination of actual fighting and lots of choreographed stuff. But I may be getting that completely wrong. Um, so do you want to tell us a little something about it? I can tell you a bit about that. I am bound sentimentally by a thing called KFAB, which means that I cannot even now um, go into certain details. It's of just, course, understood. Long tradition. But yeah, the way I got into pro wrestling, um, I was teaching something or other. I can't even remember now if it was a martial arts class or self-defense or, or stunt fighting. But um, at this glorious old school wrestling gym um, in a suburb called, called um, Kilburnie in Wellington, New Zealand. And I was finishing up teaching my classes regularly on Saturday mornings. And then these giants would um, come in as, as we were finishing it. We were finishing up and fairly quickly cottoned on because I recognized some of them from a pro wrestling show that had been phenomenally popular a number of years earlier when I was a, a kid. A TV show called On the Mat, which had been a, and they'd, they'd had a touring wrestling show. They toured throughout the country full time. And then every week there would be a, a televised broadcast. Incredibly popular show. And I recognized a number of these guys coming into the gym from that. So, okay, they're bringing pro wrestling back. Because this was just when the, it was then the WWF, now the WWE, I think. But it was just when their superstars of wrestling show had, had massively hit pop culture. So a bunch right. of the, the old school New Zealand wrestlers said, well, we'll jump on this bandwagon. And they happened to be using this wrestling gym for their training. And so right. at, at that time, I was getting into stunt work, and, and I thought this would be an incredibly useful skill set. And so I, um, one day, I went up to the guy who seemed to be in charge and said, look, you know, explain my situation. This would be great. You know, can I join in? And he looked at me and said, oh, no, mate, no, we, we really need bigger guys for this game. You know, you're a bit small. And so I said, oh, okay, fair enough. But then to me, it became the whole Shaolin temple waiting in the garden. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the next week I'd, I'd be finishing up my class. They'd be coming. I said, you know, I really would like to have a go at this. You know, I'm quite athletic. been doing martial arts for years and so on. I said, oh, no, yeah. So eventually, probably to shut me up, um, the guy agrees. And he he says, Sanga, come over here. Yes, boss. Comes this booming. Overcomes Chief Sanga, um, Samoan Matai, tribal chief, tattooed thighs. My height in both directions. Wow. Just a giant, giant man. Um, so the, the coach says, okay, Sanga, go, go down to the referee's position. Let's see what this guy can do. So Sanga drops down to the ref's position, which is in, in amateur wrestling, it's a very strongly braced position on the mat. So you're down on your hands and knees, everything's spread, your head's up, you're braced against any attempt to, to flip you over, which is what I was challenged to do. And so I jump on him, and I'm trying every dirty wrestling trick I know. <laughs> toes and 
do this around the neck. Nothing's working because not only was he an enormous man, but he was also an expert amateur wrestler and he could shift his weight. And it was like wrestling the back end of a pickup truck. There was nothing. Um, and they were all laughing at me, of course. Um, until in sheer desperation, I jumped onto his neck so that my legs were wrapped underneath his arms, um, which is a lunatic move. It made no sense, except that at precisely that instant, he shifted his weight. The combination <laughs> okay. of me doing a lunatic thing and him shifting his weight at that instant was that he was neatly flipped over like a turtle and pinned. Now, to wow. everyone watching, it looked as if I'd pulled off an incredible wrestling throw. <laughs> and then coming up and on the back, and, oh, right, well, welcome aboard, mate. We could use someone with that talent. And so, <laughs> and so I spent the next two years or so traveling around the country wrestling as the Canadian Wolverine. The Canadian Wolverine. Canadian Okay. Wolverine. All right. Um, and so were you uh, – there's one, one of them, there's the bad guy is the heel and the nice guy is the face. Were you the face or the heel? or Well, originally, because I was about half as big as everybody else, that we assumed that I'd be a face, a baby face. Sure. Because I'd have the crowd sympathy. Um, and that didn't work. We discovered instantly. Um, yeah, I was weightlifting and so on, but I'm like five feet, six inches tall. And um, so no matter how much weightlifting I did, um, I just wasn't taken seriously in the ring. So... Sure. We instantly reconceived the Wolverine as a heel, as a bad guy. And so ah, okay. I'd, I'd mouth off to the audience and I cre we created this sort of sneaky little trickster uh, persona. And um, that went over really well. And they, they, they bought me perfectly well as a, as a heel with what my best attempt at the time at a Canadian accent, which <laughs> I, I later on... <laughs> And it's, it's basically, I sound like I came from the Bronx, but I guess New Zealanders in the 80s didn't, didn't know that. Um, well, that's what I tell myself. Um, yeah, it's great fun. Um, you know, a very colorful lifestyle when you're doing that work full time. Terrific training for stunt performance. Just it can't be. Well, I can. That's, 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 it strikes me that they're, they're doing basically live stunt shows yeah. at a really high level on a daily basis. And it's, a, it's amazing to me that. They're not just dying of broken necks when I watch what they're doing. Yeah. Well, you, you do want to get out of that game, in my opinion, you know, while you still can. Um, there's a – yeah, anyway. Um, but, yeah, the, the thing with, with what we were doing, I was at the absolute tail end of old-school British blue-collar pro wrestling. Um, right. In that – the guys that I was working with were mostly bouncers, dock workers, um, um, like people who worked in, in um, you know, truckers, that sort of thing. These yeah. days, a lot of professional wrestlers are, you know, video game geeks. Really? Yeah. But, okay. But no, we were at the tail end of the, the old British style, and that meant that everything we did in the ring was improvised. Um, wow. Wow. There was nothing choreographed in the way that you'd stage a, a stunt fight for TV or film or a stage fight. Um, you just oh my train God. and train and train until literally no matter what the guy throws at you, you can respond not only um, in character, but, you know, in, in a way that keeps that keeps the keeps story the fight going. going. Yeah, and um, yeah. was, as it were, plausible. 
and it's a, it's a high art. It's I, I compare yeah, absolutely. It, when That's... I'm describing it to acting students, I compare it to this um, to the Commedia dell'arte. Um, right. It's it's basically combat improvisation at a okay. acrobatic level. It's it's yeah. enormously exhilarating to, to perform to get it right. So did did you know who was going to win? I mean, was that scripted or was that it just all, that falls under this thing called KFAB? Oh, okay. Sorry. What what is KFAB? KFAB is a an old school um, Carney term. Okay. And it 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 has it's a slang and it implies there are things that are kept in house. Okay. And I'm sure these days, if people are, are intrigued, they can look, and there's a whole bunch of people who will have broken KFAB. But I'd, uh, sentimentally, I'm just... You are not going to be one of them. I, I respect that. That's perfectly fine. Okay. So so having gone from um, pro wrestling, um, did that take you then into stage combat or combat improvisation, or it was where all- did you go from there? That was all happening at the same time, and at this stage, it's hard for me to remember... Um, Sure. No, I, I mean, I had been doing at least stage combat before I started pro wrestling, and then that and stunt work, were, and also when I got into historical um, fencing, it was all happening at the same time, kind of a heady period during my sure. 20s. So, so tell me about getting into historical fencing, because I mean, I'm, most of the listeners to this show will be sword people. That's at least my assumption. So... How did you get into the historical side of things, and what did that look like well, back in the old days? Yeah, and well, here I've got to go back to when I was a young teenager again, and that, and again, you know, just for your younger listeners, you need to sort of imagine a world not only without the internet, but if you're living in Wellington, New Zealand during the you know, mid '80s, um, if you become interested in something like the idea. I remember writing when I was maybe 13 years old or something in, in a diary, wouldn't it be cool if you could do three musketeers sword fighting as a sport for real? Yes. No sense that, that that was something that was being done anywhere um, because, you know, I, I just wasn't aware of it. You know, you'd, you'd have a thought or you might see something briefly on a TV show or you might read a, a paragraph in a book and then that was it. There was no other way to find out about this stuff. Right. But, yeah, I, so, so anyway, I followed through with these interests in, his, in um, unusual martial arts things. Mm-hmm. And I found Arthur Wise's book in the library. That's, I think it's... Ah, oh, it's a great book. Yeah. The Art and History of Personal Combat. And oh, as right. I was, That's right. As I was doing um, Taekwondo and then Filipino martial arts and, and kickboxing and a bunch of other things, sort of more mainstream stuff, I sustained this interest in the the unusual and came across the wise book. And so I'm pouring through it. I'm saying, okay, obviously this is something that could be described as a martial art because they're doing all these sure. things. And but, but the nature of the wise book is there's not a whole hell of a lot of, of explanation going on. There's a lot of very intriguing pictures. Yeah, it's, it's more like, um, like a survey. I mean, if I remember rightly, it's been a while since I've read it, but I think he ends up with uh, fighter planes. So... Um, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah the um, bulk of it is, duels in the air between uh, pilots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the the bulk of it is illustrations from historical fencing manuals, but there's very little, by the way, of translation. Um, there's really no technical translation. So when I first started doing historical fencing, we used to just call it, you know, historical reenactment. In yeah. the I guess the late eighties. Um, 
we were just blissfully unaware of the entire body of historical fencing material. There were rumors that at a university in Auckland, there was a mysterious book that had been written by a fighter in the 1500s or something. But okay. without traveling to Auckland, which I eventually did, Auckland is another city in New Zealand, by the way, um, there was just nothing. There was, so we, we just made it up. You know, we, Peter Lyon was, was making swords and, you know, you'd make quarter staves and, you know, improvise your way through, focus on the ergonomics of the weapons themselves, you know, whatever you intuitively did from having watched, you know, movies and TV shows. And so you, we were just kind of making it up as we went. Sure. Um, I did eventually find the book. It was a copy of um, the Victorian re-edition of George Silver's works. Ah, uh, right, yeah. And that was, you know, although, again, I only had a couple of hours at, at Auckland University Library to pour through this thing, but that was that was fascinating. Um, and I remember it had the, the uh, a joke that actually made me laugh out loud, which which impressed me because it had been written in 15-whatever. Uh, 15-99, that's when it was published. Yes, yeah. thank you. Um, yeah, and there was a joke in there, something about um, – the, remember the old pro, proverb, "'Tis good sleeping in a whole skin." Right. <laughs> Which made me laugh out loud, and that, that's... Yeah, that's, that's quite something for a grumpy old English bloke from 500 yeah. years ago. Precisely. Um, but yeah, so anyway, we... I was basically out of historical reenactment combat by the time the first Talhofer images and so forth started filtering out. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, in fact, as that was happening, that was pretty much when I was starting on Lord of the Rings. But my my main interest in that field, I, particularly I enjoyed quarterstaff fencing and so on. My main interest at that point was professional because clearly from from reading Wise, or from looking at the pictures in Wise anyway, there was a huge corpus of information that could hugely benefit and certainly diversify what people were doing in, in terms of staging fights for Shakespearean production. Sure. So as far as I was concerned, the faster people figured that stuff out, the better off the um, the profession of stage combat would be. Right. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Okay. Um, now, I have in my notes that you are, you are something, you have a, a thing called combat improvisation, which yeah. is something that you teach or used to teach. Yes, I do. And and it, it's it's there are there are the tantalising glimpses of it on the internet. But would you care to go into it a little bit? Explain what it's all about. Sure. Yeah. Um, that is something that I that really dates back again to the eighties, I guess. And when I first started to teach actors um, stage combat, and what I observed over a period of years was that, and initially I was teaching tricks. I was teaching a system of techniques. Um, you know, five ways to stage a slap and, and eight thrusts with sure, a sword sure. and that sort of thing. What I found was once I'd trained that first generation of actors and then I'd meet up with them immediately after they graduated, we'd be doing um, productions on stage. And so now I'd be um, – the context has shifted. I'm no longer teaching them stage combat at school. I'm working with them as fellow professionals in a, in a big theater show or TV or whatever. Mm -hmm. I found that they were – they remembered the moves. They remembered, you know, at least some of the moves that I'd shown them. Sure. But they didn't have the versatility that was required of them because if we were, um, if I was doing, say, a show like The Legend of William Tell, which was set in this fantasy world, 
Mm-hmm. Um, there were weapons that we certainly had never covered in stage combat. There was a whole sort of movement aesthetic because each of the, the fantasy cultures for that TV series um, had their own aesthetic and, and obviously their own way of moving. If we hadn't covered those things specifically while they were at drama school a number of years before, they just we were basically beginning from scratch, and so I thought they had to be a better way. So, right. I, so they're lacking fundamentals, basically. Well, no, it's that they they knew the fundamentals, but the fundamentals were very narrow in application. The, the fundamentals ah, okay. were technical, but they were not um, they weren't adaptable. Right. Okay. So, so no I, principles, really. Yeah. Yeah. So what I did was go back into my martial arts studies. This this idea of attribute training was kind of a wind blowing through the, the world tree of the martial arts during the 80s. It's a post, post-Jeet Kundo thing, you know, the idea that rather than um, uh, compiling enormous lists of techniques to master, you should look at the attributes, the, the movement skills and the athletic skills that allow you to execute the techniques with the idea that once that if you master those, then you can you can sharpen and specialize them into any number of techniques later on. And so that, that became my guiding philosophy in teaching um, stage combat. And I developed over the course of a number of years, and particularly when I started to travel and teach internationally, um, a whole series, kind of an open-ended um, series of games and exercises designed to teach seven basic skills. Um, okay. These are in the movement skills, um, but really fundamental stuff. Think, things like um, what I used to call synergy, which is your tactile responsiveness. And in historical fencing, it's it's Fulin in the German tradition. And okay. I, I can't call to mind the word for that in the Italian. The, the sensation. You're probably thinking of sentimental di ferro. Thank you. Yeah. And it was the sentiment of the blade as well, I think, in the in, when Hutton was writing about it, or, or maybe um, Burton. Anyway, yeah, that stuff. So it occurred to me that that's not specific to any weapon or even to the fact that you're holding a weapon at all. You can do it, as we have done um, when you've um, railroaded me into doing pushing hands. At- <laughs> that's that railroaded. Okay. Uh, it was railroaded. Uh, literally every time Tony and I have been in the same room for the first time in a year or so, like when we meet at an event or so, we end up doing some kind of push hands type stuff. It literally was, every time. It, that is true. But um, in my defense, it was railroading from my point of view because I'd never actually done pushing hands before. I'd, <laughs> pushing hands. What? No. Yeah, for pushing hands with you was the first time I'd ever done it. You're kidding. No, I'm not. Then how, then how on earth did we end up doing it? I don't know. I think, well, I think what happened, like my impression, I remember the first time you came up to me and said, do you want to push hands? I said, oh, I'll have a go at it. I think it was because you, you'd probably seen me do some of these um, synergy exercises. Right, yes. And yes. enough that I had some Tai Chi in the background, but I didn't. They just yeah. wasn't the styles that I'd studied. What I did have through the development of the exercises was a, a fairly decent understanding of, the, of these fundamentals, things like alignment, which is – your ability to hold yourself upright and, and move through yeah. space. Grounding and structure, that sort of thing. Yeah. And synergy, which is this tactile responsiveness. So, yeah, I had those. Um, and so my to, to bring it back into the, the question about combat improv, um, I just, in this fever of invention that lasted a number of years, brought together this, this um, sort of open-ended system of exercises that taught those skills, those attributes. 
And that became the basis of my teaching, first stage combat and then increasingly martial arts as well because I found it worked really, really well. Um, where I'm focusing not so much on the detail of the technique at the beginning, mm -hmm. but on your ability to um, to move effectively in combat. Right. And um, once once people have those attributes under the, under the belt, once they understand extension, alignment, synergy, um, cascade, you know, the, the seven skills, then they can spend the rest of their lives honing those skills in all sorts of different technical and tactical and stylistic directions. That's sure. the basic premise. Yeah, you, you can spot a martial artist by the way they move, and it doesn't matter what they've done. Well, you could often kind of guess what they've done, but you can always spot that one. That person has been trained properly. That person knows how to kick and punch a bit, but can't actually move. I mean, it's, it's, sure, it's, yeah. it's really clear. Yeah, it is. And, and what I find is that you can gain this sort of um, broad-based um, attributional or, or um, mm -hmm. skills, skills level, body knowledge, ability um, by training in one very um, broad-based style or by cross-training in a number of specialized styles. Even if those styles focus more on technique, you'll pick up the movement skills over time through um, basically muscle memory repetition. My approach in combat improv was to basically flip that on its head to teach the skills more or less independently of technique um, and then to focus on the technical application. It's just, it's another, and I, I found kind of a faster way to arrive at the same goal point. Uh, to my mind, it's always made sense to train the body first yeah. because, uh, you know, it's the way, the way I describe it to students is, you know, if, if I'm like 75 kilos and my sword is a bit less than two, the sword is like 1% of the total combination. And it makes sense to get the sword delivery system working properly. Yeah. It's like, you know, like if you have the best drill bit in the world, if your drill doesn't work, the drill bit is useless. So spend time kind of building the power drill to put the drill bit into. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, and I would, I think a lot of people have, the, have you know, different ways of describing the same approach. The only clarification I'd make is that that often translates into sort of pure athleticism in the sense of sure. you, know, you need to have the strength and the endurance and so forth. That's all absolutely true and you do. Mm -hmm. I just kind of expanded that into this more slightly conceptual realm of um, coordination skills, kinesthetic skills, um, right. and, and sort of systematized that it, it at that level. But yeah, it's really, it was just another way of arriving at that where we all want to be, which is, to as quickly and efficiently as possible impart a system of skills that will allow people to fight well. Sure, absolutely. Okay, now you wrote the book uh, Ancient Swordplay, The Revival of Eliz Elizabethan Fencing in Victorian London, uh, which is about Hutton and uh, Castle and that gang. Um, now, this is particularly important to me because I have the Sword in the Centuries in my study i'm looking at it right now and that the copy i have belonged to my grandfather oh, lovely. and there's a pencil written note in the beginning in my grandfather's hand saying that um oh i've, I've said this before on the podcast but never mind it bears repeating that in in my grandfather's hand it says that um leon paul fencing master of london tells us that captain hutton used to have himself blindfolded on occasion before fencing one or other of his students Okay, so 
My grandfather, who was a fencer, fenced with Leon Paul. Leon Paul fenced with Alfred Hutton. And my grandfather gave me my first ever foil lesson. So technically... Technically, yes. Technically, right? I, I, I'm sort of like, you know, uh, an, an offshoot of that original revival of Elizabethan fencing in Victorian London. And, I'm and I pushed hands with you, however reluctantly, and that me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I can't possibly cap that story, Guy, but in terms of lineage, I was talking before about our, our stunt team in the 80s. Um, one of our guys, one of our stuntmen, um, was a direct descendant of the Angelo dynasty. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, and he, we asked him about it, and honestly, at, you know, at that remove, he didn't know a great deal about it, but he said that um, a number of members of his family did fence as a matter of tradition. Yeah, in, wow. obviously in the modern style, but that had passed down at, at least to his generation in, in New Zealand in the 80s. That is super cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, so we're, we're currently living through the second revival of historical martial arts. Yeah. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what basically was in, in your book, Ancient Swordplay? Yes, everyone should go off and read it, and I'm sure everyone listening to this will, will go along and buy it and read it straight away. Yeah. Um, but... Um, so what was it like? What, what, well, in- I mean, I got interested in that subject because, as you'll recall, during the, the sort of, again, the heady early days of online HEMA communication, mm-hmm. the Wild West, basically, it was. Well, it was <laughs> the Wild West with sort of an early scholarly bent. But, um, yeah. you know, people were aware of Hutton and Castle basically because their books were much more available to, to most of us through public libraries right. in the 80s and 90s. And- yeah, they're recently published and they're in English. Yeah. Um, and as as we all collectively started to find out more as, as the Talhoffers and the Deliberies and all of those sorts of things started to become available, I think there was a sort of a, a mass turning against Hutton and Castle. They became known collectively as the Victorians, as if they were the sort of unit, which they, they really weren't in those Yeah. Um, and I think it was because... It was partly a a contempt, well, then contemporary nineties, early two thousands, general bias against the Victorians, as in the, the Victorian mindset, mm-hmm. um, and there was a sense that we were rapidly surpassing what they knew, but that was wow. based on our reading of a couple of of um, Hutton's books. So, sure. and but that just became the way people spoke of them. It, it fairly quickly, as I recall it became rather dismissive. You talk about Hutton and Castle and you know, the Victorians, you know, they, they made yeah, all the yeah. mistakes and so on. Well, Castle does refers to yeah. foil as the epitome of the, the kind of the final yeah, evolution yeah. of swordsmanship yeah. and talks about the rough, untutored fighting of the Middle Ages. Exactly, yes. And he was – but what people imagined at that time, I, I certainly did – was that he was this fusty old white-bearded Victorian gentleman poo-pooing the whole thing from from a sort of Darwinian perspective. What people don't realize, and I didn't realize until I started researching Ancient Swordplay, the book, was that he was a 27-year-old prodigy when he wrote that that um, that when he wrote um, Schools and Masters of Fence, mm-hmm. um, which he wrote in this, again, this uh, fever of, of enthusiasm and invention, but as a very young man, um, a very young you know, genius basically, with ex- with unique at that time access to certain historical um, treatises and manuscripts, but there was a bunch that he didn't have. Um, 
for example, his his as far as I've been able to determine, or as was able to determine, and, and I wrote Ancient Swordplay a few years ago now. Um, he had no access, although he had an enormous library in via Hutton as well, a huge library of texts relating to say seventeenth, eighteenth century fencing, especially the rapier tradition. Um, they may only have had access to one longsword treatise, um, which I think might have been, I'm, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it was Parenfate, something like that in, in German. Okay. Um, I'm not familiar. Yeah. Um, it's very obscure even today, but it seems like that was the one that Hutton eventually got a hold of. Um, so when when Hutton was, well, we'll talk about Cast right now. When he wrote those lines, those um, sort of dismissive lines about historical fencing, he was writing from a position of being really very highly educated in the rapierist tradition, but knowing very little other than maybe seeing some old woodcuts of the two-handed sword. And he jumped the gun as a, as a young 27-year-old um, man of his time. He jumped the gun in that regard. But to his credit, as I discovered when I was, again, researching the book, um, he modified his opinion later in life as more of the, the older treatises became available to him. And if you read his lectures and so on, published decades after Schools of Master's Offense, um, this is probably through Hutton's influence because Hutton always had a much stronger interest in the, the practical applications of the sword. Mm -hmm. um, you start to see Castle coming around to his point of view. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And again, it, it just that's the sort of thing that came up as I was doing the research. And I thought, you know, people really need to reassess these guys, um, really understanding the context that they were writing and, you know, the the, the pragmatic details of, of the circumstances, you know, the, the fact that sure. Castle was only 27 when he wrote this book, um, the fact that Hutton, when he was writing um, his books, he, they were intended, I think, um, at least uh, what was the – is it old sword play that reads like an instruction manual? I think it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm sure that those were written as in-house manuals um, initially. So, for example, when he – and again, I'm thinking back a few years um, to this research, but Castle's approach to rapier completely disregarded the cut, as I recall. And uh, yeah, approach, I haven't read recently either, but that sounds about right. Yeah. And I think his approach to – um, Longsword play disregarded the thrust. I'm not. I can't recall the detail, unfortunately. But when you when you understand that his context in writing is, I'm sure that they were intended as in-house manuals for his very small um, cadre of students. You know, there's, we're only talking about five or six young soldiers. Um, and then for, for whatever reason, he did publish the books. But I I believe going by the the you know, the evidence that I came up with that those were not a matter of him making mistakes, but rather of him deliberately and artificially altering the style to make particular points in his demonstrations. Ah, okay. He wanted to convey to an audience of, um, of um, middle-class and upper-class English folk during the late 1800s, this is the, this is the nature of this style. This is the gist of this style. He wasn't interested in getting into the weeds. And obviously, with his with his background, he knew damn well that, yes, you could cut with certain kinds of rapiers and you could certainly thrust with a longsword. Um, there's, there's no question that he knew that. Um, the interesting question, from my point of view, is why he made those alterations in terms of his um, public displays. Ah, uh, okay. 
Fascinating. And, and of course, this is the period which uh, Bartitsu comes about. Um, you have a documentary out called The Lost Martial Art, um, the Lost Martial Art of Sherlock Holmes. And another one, actually, which I, I watched this very morning, and it's fascinating, The Hidden History of the Suffragette Bodyguards, um, which is uh, No Man Will Defend Me. That's what it's. Um, the full title is No Man Shall Protect Us, The Hidden History of the Suffragette Bodyguards. I have an That's incurable right. tendency towards Victorianate um, titles. <laughs> I, I, well, that's what happens when you get yourself immersed in a... Yeah. In a period, or you pick up the, the ticks. My brother, who's um, a PR expert, tells me that that's my brand and I have to run it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, the, sorry, continue. So, so what, what drew you to Bartitsi? I mean, I've, I've seen you do demonstrations of it um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating, but why particularly Bartitsu? And yeah. Well, yeah. Um, guess what? It stretches back to when I was a kid. Um, and a martial arts nut kid. And I remember vividly um, reading this. It was a Sherlock Holmes encyclopedia. I don't remember why I was reading it. Um, apparently, this has caused a bit of a misconception in, in the modern Batitsu world. It's not that I was a Sherlock Holmes nut who then moved into martial arts because of my interest in Batitsu. It was far from that. Um, but I can't remember why I would have been reading a Sherlock Holmes encyclopedia because I, I had never read the stories as a kid. I really had no interest in them. But for whatever reason, the vivid memory is that is sitting at the age of 13 or 14 and reading this thing, coming across this reference to Baritsu um, and a definition in this thing. And there were some pictures which I decades later discovered were of Barton Wright demonstrating his style. And um, there was this single line description it described Baritsu as the Victorian version of jiu-jitsu. And I think I was hooked from that moment <laughs> um, because I was fascinated by the implications. What, what does that mean, the Victorian version of jiu-jitsu? You know? But again, I'm in Wellington, New Zealand in the mid-1980s. You can go to the library, look up Baritsu. There's nothing at all. Occasionally in the couple of decades following that, you'd come across a single reference in a footnote to an old judo book or, or something. But it was this massive mystery um, until, and it may well have been you, um, somebody posted to the, the old um, Western Arts Yahoo Groups forum that was one of the main conduits for um, Western martial art discussion online in the early days. And they quoted a uh, little passage from, it was probably um, Hutton's old, um, old sword play again where there, he made this throwaway line about the Bartitsu Club being the headquarters of ancient sword play in England. And, okay, okay. and when I read that, all of that, that was me. Yeah. Well, when I, when I read that quote, the little snippet, all of this childhood interest and then through my teens and early 20s, all of that interest suddenly came flooding back. I was like, okay, what the hell was going on at this place called the Bartitsu Club where they were practicing a Victorian version of jiu-jitsu which had somehow become the the headquarters for ancient swordplay in England, I picked up along the lines that they were practicing some sort of fighting with overcoats and, and walking sticks. I was just, what the hell was, were these people doing? And fortunately, there were another couple of people in the world, maybe five people anywhere, who'd been paying attention to this stuff and had been wondering about it for decades. So we got together a guy called Will Thomas, a novelist, had also been interested. Um, he put up, set up another Yahoo group because that was the way we, we talked back in the day. 
and um, it gradually gathered a head of steam and it just became this. What fascinated me about Bartitsu really, it wasn't just the style. There was an immense curiosity about what they were doing, but there was there also there was a more sustaining curiosity about who they were and, and, and why they were doing what they did and what happened to it. Because Bartitsu, unlike many martial arts, is a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I just became obsessed with, with learning what that story was. And so the the technical practice of the style um, was almost like a byproduct of my interest in the, the sociopolitics and the, the personalities involved. Okay. And it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Would you like to summarize that for the listeners who might be like curious about Absolutely. About now, listeners, please bear in mind that was my passion for the best part of 20 years. I've produced documentaries on the subject. I've edited, written books, articles, so on. So, Guy, you, you encouraged me to get lost in the weeds. This could take a while. That's what um, I've got all the time in the world, mate. I, I, I believe you. Um, I, will, I will try to give the, um, the, the pricey version anyway. So, basically, um, this English chap, Edward Barton Wright, Kind of an adventurous guy. He had traveled around um, Europe and the what were called the Strait Settlements, um, Indonesia, Portugal, and various places. He professed to have had a lifelong interest in the arts of self-defense. Um, we don't know much about it, but as a young man, he'd, he'd um, studied at a Parisian university or university in France anyway. He probably picked up his savate there. He picked up some boxing. Somewhere along the lines, um, possibly in Portugal, he'd studied um, knife fighting. Um, he picked up some fencing. By the time he arrived in Japan in 1895, he was a, a fairly athletic, as far as anyone can determine, a fairly street-hardened um, chap. And he became fascinated with Japanese martial arts, um, particularly jiu-jitsu in the Shinden Fudoryu school. And as it happened, um, he, well, he was working for a, uh, an outfit, English outfit in uh, Kobe, Japan, and as it happened, a teacher there in the Shinden Fudo School was one of the relatively few Japanese sensei at that time who were opening their schools up to Westerners. And so Barton Wright, by sheer virtue of being the right guy in the right place at the right time, became one of the very first Westerners to study Asian martial arts formally. He did that for about three years. He returns to London in 1898. And somewhere along the line, he came up with this extraordinarily novel idea which was, let's take the best elements of all these different fighting styles from Japan and from Europe and, and from wherever else we can find them. Let's combine them together. Let's create a new martial art, a new system mm-hmm. um, under the under this umbrella. We'll bring together the best people, the best trainers. We'll set up an exclusive club in London, and it will be will form this new art of self defence, which he called with no undue modesty, but it's <laughs> the first syllable of his surname, and then Itsu, yeah, yeah. which in sort of bastardised Japanese, it it really implies Barton Wright's techniques. But Barton Wright himself, having coined the word, has the privilege to define it, and he would define it as self-defense in every form. So that's that's the accepted definition. It's like the the original Jeet like Kune Do. Original Day. Yeah, he was this. He was Bruce Lee seventy years before, you know, ahead of time. Um, it's exactly the original premise of Jeet Kune Do, um, only you know in in late Victorian England, which again is just part of the fascination for me. Um, and so that's what he did. He he. Um, 
initially started performing demonstrations, particularly of jiu-jitsu, which was fantastically novel at this time in London. It was a sensation um, because it, it, it latched on to a number of pop culture obsessions at that time. There was a, an obsession with um, criminality for, for all sorts of sociocultural reasons. Newspapers were increasingly reporting on the hooligan menace, which is this middle-class cultural fear that the, that the, the working classes or the, especially the criminal classes were invading and they were they were all after your families and all that sort of thing. It was just sensationalism. Um, but it also tied in with the pop culture obsession with physical culture and of Orientalism, which was maybe slightly patronizing, but was a genuine interest in particularly um, at this time in matters Japanese, because, of course, Japan had only been opened to the Western world for a, a short period of time um, by, say, circa 1900. And so Barton Wright, again, was the right guy in the right place at the right time. He set up a club um, eventually, and again, I'm just racing through a lot of interesting history here. Um, <laughs> people, people, are, people are really like hooked by this. They can go and buy your book. Yeah, um, I would have, in, in, if we'd been doing this interview a couple of years ago, I would have directed them to the Butetsu Society website, but unfortunately that is temporarily no more. Anyway, racing through. Um, he set up a club in London Shaftesbury Avenue in the Soho district, um, very nice district, still is today. You can still visit the building where his club was set up, and I have a number of times gone on pilgrimages. Um, the club itself, as far as we can make out, was a fairly Spartan arrangement. Um, it was in the basement of a very large basement of a very large building. Um, and he invited expert instructors from various parts of the world, brought over several um, guys from Japan, a couple of whom left after a disagreement very shortly after that. Um, but then he brought in another couple, uh, Yukio Tani and Sadakazu Yanishi, two very young but also very highly talented um, jiu-jitsu experts uh, from Switzerland, Pierre Vigny, who came in as a savart expert and who had also devised his own fantastically innovative system of self-defense with walking sticks and umbrellas. Um, a very powerful young Swiss wrestler, a guy called Armand Shepard, who came in as the physical culture and wrestling instructor although the style of wrestling he was teaching is not exactly clear. And for a couple of, of um, gloriously interesting years, the Batitsu Club was kind of a place to see and be seen. They were doing demonstrations. Barton Wright took especially the Japanese champions out on the music hall circuit, so they were challenging you know, big European strongmen and wrestlers. Come up on stage, gentlemen. Test your skills against these boys from Japan. Um now, the fact that they were required, the, the European challenges were required to fight in the jiu-jitsu style kind of cemented the Batitsu Club's reputation because <laughs> although both Tani and Yanishi were, were tiny guys, they were both very highly skilled jiu And, of course, jiu-jitsu being a submission wrestling style, it was unlike anything that had been seen in Europe for hundreds of years. And they tended to make pretty short work of, of the challenges. Um, and there were all sorts of controversies and, and challenges from the boxing community and the wrestling community and wars of words in the physical culture magazines, and it was all quite exciting um, for, for several very interesting years. During early 1902, for reasons that, after 18 years of incredibly intensive research, we're still not absolutely certain why, the club folded. The club folded. Um, they they had a swan song in the form of a, a basically successful tour of the provinces where they, they took the club on the road and they're performing challenges and 
exhibitions and so on at Oxford University and Cambridge and various places. But the Bartitsu Club in London was no more. And so by mid-1902 onwards, the, the instructors scattered. Many of them went on to very successful careers as, as wrestlers and as um, self-defense martial arts instructors. Barton Wright himself seems to have basically abandoned the whole field as a work in progress in 1902 went on to lead a slightly less colourful life, but um, still quite controversial, as a specialist in all sorts of um, electrical um, health apparatus. Okay. Um, but basically died a pauper. Um, rather sad end for a man who'd had such a colourful um, early life. Died as a pauper and was buried in, in what was literally called a pauper's grave. Um, he lived a long life, though, lived until he was in his early 90s. And I visited the the site of his grave um, it, because it, it was a pauper's grave site. They don't um, they they didn't install individual markers, so you can go to the area of ground where he and a number of other people were were buried, uh, which was which was a sobering experience. I actually did that as part of the documentary production, right? Um, and so that was that was it, and that might have been the entire story of Bartitsu. It might have been this flash in the pan thing that happened for a few years around 1900, if not for the fact that it was written into the Sherlock Holmes stories, um, and, and at a particular high point in the Sherlock Holmes stories. I won't go through the entire thing, but basically, it transpires that when Sherlock Holmes faced his arch nemesis, the evil Professor Moriarty, at the brink of the Reichenbach waterfall, an incredibly exciting literary scene, a literary classic moment. Um, the two of them, it is deduced by Watson later on, appear to have tumbled to their death. It's later on revealed that Holmes, in fact, survived and hurled Moriarty to his doom through his use of what um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle infamously wrote as Baritsu rather than as Bartitsu. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I very, very strongly suspect that that was just Conan Doyle who, who wasn't really up with all this Bartitsu wrestling stuff, um, copied that misspelling verbatim from a headline in the London Times. Um, so I, I suspect that all Conan Doyle knew about it was that it was an art of Japanese wrestling that was called Baritsu. Um, but, but he wrote it in. And that, that reference, because although Bartitsu was fairly quickly forgotten, the fact that Sherlock Holmes was the most popular literary character literally in the world throughout much of the 20th century that ensured that people kept wondering, well, okay, what the hell what is, is, is he talking about? Yeah. 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 It's the ultimate celebrity endorsement. It is, yeah. Um, in a very cack-handed and strange way, it really was. <laughs> and so that that reference certainly fueled the, the revival of interest in Bartitsu because Sherlock Holmes fandom was still massive when we, we began that project about 20 years ago. The, the whole enterprise was given a gigantic boost when the Sherlock Holmes movie came out, when the first one with Robert Downey Jr. was home. Oh, yes. Um, I literally watched it happen in real time. Um, I knew the guy who was the fight choreographer for the movie. He's an old colleague of mine, Richard Ryan. We sent the production copies of the Butitsu Compendium for use as reference. We never expected, because I know how, the, how that business works, we never expected to see verbatim Butitsu on screen. Um, so taking that for granted, we knew that this was going to be the first time ever that Victorian London and Sherlock Holmes in particular were specifically associated with martial arts and action and all that stuff. First time that had ever happened in pop culture. And it did, and I watched in real time, I think, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, 
The hits on the Batitsu Wikipedia page went up 800% overnight. Wow. Uh, the Batitsu Compendium, you know, all of this stuff, it had been the fringe of the fringe. We used to literally yeah. joke about the idea of what we were doing with the Batitsu revival yeah. ever hitting right. the us, long, us long sort people were like the mainstream of historical yes. martial arts. And you Batitsu guys were very much on the fringes. And of oh, course, yeah. Sword is on the fringes of martial arts. So, yeah, you are literally on the very fringes of the fringes. Yeah. And, yeah, and it, we, we used to joke about it. And there it happened. And overnight, all of a sudden, it's, it's articles in the New York Times and it's, it's, it's TV yeah. interviews and all of la, 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 very, very heady period of several years. And that suddenly put us on the pop culture map. For better or worse, I would say that there, there were um, drawbacks to that as well as benefits. Of course. But that, that effectively is, is, a, is a highly condensed, crazy version of the budget history. <laughs> Tony, you kept it down under two hours. I'm very impressed. Yeah, me too. <laughs> myself okay. Now, you now, mentioned um, Lord of the Rings earlier. And according to my research, you are the, you were the cultural fighting styles designer for the movies. I was, and yes. of of course, you know every sword person in the world has, has an opinion about Lord of the Rings and the fighting Lord of the Rings and what have you. So, from the horse's mouth, as it were, yeah. what was it like being part of it? Well, I mean, it's only sort of from the horse's mouth, but I, to explain that, I need to explain what I actually did and what a cultural fighting styles designer might conceivably be. So anyway, um, I'd worked with Peter Jackson on a number of previous movies. Um, I got my first stunt job actually with a, a stuntman called Peter Hassel um, on a uh, one of his first movies, which was called Brain Dead. And yes. he refers to it as, as Splatstick. It probably still holds some sort of record as the goriest film ever made. Um, and it was a, a bizarre zombie story set in Wellington in the 1950s. That was my I've first ever. Ah, right. That was my first ever professional stunt gig. And then I worked with him again on a really fun um, historical mockumentary called Forgotten Silver, which is probably one of Peter Jackson's lesser known works, but I thoroughly recommend everybody watch it. Um, and I did a whole bunch of that. That movie actually was my record for on-screen deaths as a stuntman. I think I died seven times in different characters, different roles. <laughs> Sorry, that's called Forgotten Silver. Forgotten Silver, yeah. Okay, um, I'll put a note in the show notes. Yeah. And um, somehow or other, and I cannot remember how, at around about this time, I, was, I, I read a script that Peter had written for a movie called Blubberhead. And this was a sort of a Monty Python take on a Lord of the Rings swords and sorcery sort of genre. Mm -hmm. And the movie, movie was never made. Um, but And I, can't, I cannot remember how I got a hold of a script. It may have been a sort of black market type thing. I'm not sure. Um, but I remember having read a description of um, one character, I think it was a villain, having a weird fighting style. And that reading the script under those circumstances, that phrase stuck in my mind. So I kind of knew that Peter had this, this interest in the idea of fighting styles. He is not a martial artist himself, but he has a sort of a geek interest in that field. Sure. Um, I started to hear vague rumors, although everything was extremely secretive um, about this Lord of the Rings thing that he was doing. I was initially called into the project, oddly enough, to um, 
test one of what were called the big rigs. These were the enormously elaborate um, stilt armatures for, for use. The, the theory was that we would use those to um, create move, create shots where you have human-sized actors playing hobbits who are supposed to be three right. inches right. tall yeah. in frame with normal-sized humans. So the notion was we'd use these big rig stilt costumes, basically, to massively increase actors' heights. It gets very complicated, and I'm not sure they ended up using those very much, but that was my first thing on the movie because I was short and athletic. Um, They brought me in early on to test a big rig. And then I think I mentioned there the idea that you know, basically, I you know I'd be happy to do this, but I was basically a fight guy. I was a, a stuntman and a fight guy. I was then called in to to do a sort of audition for a role, and it wasn't cultural fighting sales designer because I invented that title. Um, but it was it was when the the um, digital effects department, which got underway at least a year before the the rest of the production did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they were auditioning people to come in and do fight stuff for them for motion capture. And uh, your readers, your listeners, sorry, are probably um, au fait with motion capture these days. But back then in the late 90s, it was absolutely cutting-edge um, stuff. Sure. Yeah, the gigantic majority of people outside the film industry had never heard of this thing called motion capture. Um, but the digital effects people needed to have mocap data. They needed to have people moving around in in fighting ways basically so that they would have something to do and so they brought me in for that purpose and i came in prepped man i brought in every weapon i had i brought in dueling (laughs) shields and long swords and everything and um it was a it was probably the single strangest audition i've ever done though i haven't done all that many of those um I'm probably not speaking out of school to describe it just a little bit to give you a sense of, of the flavor. There was a quite a large group of people watching. Um, I was there with all of my weapons and tools and stuff lined up. There were a couple of what are called maquettes, which are yeah. highly detailed models. Um, one of them was of an Uruk warrior, a member of the Urukai. Mm-hmm. Um and there were some facsimile weapons, which had been made basically out of aluminium and, and padding. And that was it. Now, due to the incredible secrecy of the production, they were not allowed to tell me really anything beyond showing me these these models. And their expectation was that basically they were calling in martial artists and so on with the idea that the martial artist would demonstrate their fighting style, whether it's historical fencing or kinjutsu or whatever. Mm-hmm. This panel of, of creatives who were already working on the project would video record that, would then go away and say, okay, well, what he's doing looks a bit like what we have in mind for, for this character, so we'll use them. Now, I came okay. in, I think uniquely, I'm not sure, but I, but I, I think it's likely, <clears throat> from with a background of stunt work and particularly stage combat, I came in as a creative, and that made all the difference. So what I did, was, you know, they were asking me, well, if you can just demonstrate your style, and I said, well, no, I can't. Because you know, clearly what we're trying to do here is is basically devise a fighting style that matches this character, this this thing. I didn't even know it was called a Nuruk. Um, but I said, what I can do is using these props and looking at this character, I can I can do an improvisation. 
if I was given time, then I could create an entire fighting style for the culture that this character comes from. And they went, oh. Um, and so that was what I did. I picked up the prop weapons, um, did an improvisation and, and as much of the characters I could glean from looking at the maquette. And a short time later on, they called me in and said, said would you like to do this job? And so that, that was the first part of the job was, um, was entirely working with the motion capture department. Again, because they were ready to go um, long, long ahead of when, it, when any actors were being brought on board or before first unit stuff started happening. And what that evolved into by default was becoming um, a fighting styles designer. We added cultural to it because initially um, the the different um, types of Lord of the Rings characters, the Rohirrim and the Uruks and the Elves and so forth, were being referred to within the production as races. And I, point, I pointed out that a fighting style is a cultural artifact. It's not a matter of race. Right. Um, I think they were using Tolkien's language to sort of yeah. um, by default. So it became cultural fighting styles design, and that was my job for a couple of years. I would um, to examine – I read the books, which weren't, frankly, a huge amount of help because sure. Tolkien – yeah, he, he's okay at describing the sweep of battles. He would occasionally say something like, Frodo took a short stab at the cave troll's foot. But, but when, you, <laughs> when you were trying to design fighting styles to the level of granular detail of things like, for purpose of comparison, can an Urukai bench press a motorcycle or to what? You know, to, okay, I have, to, I have to know. Can an Urukai bench press a motorcycle? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the, stronger the stronger ones could, yeah. This is, I mean, I'm thinking back 20 years now, but yeah, I think I think we decided that they could do that you know, if push came to shove. But I mean, the level of detail we were working with Tolkien's books weren't really a, a great deal of help. Um, but what was of enormous help was what all of the other production departments were doing. Um, because what I was doing was conceptual design work, exactly the same way people will be familiar with the way costume designers and, and set designers and so on create the aesthetic of, of the world based on whatever the source material is. And um, so the elves are my favorite example because they have this kind of art nouveau curvilinear aesthetic, which is present in, and, and and the detail that we were all working to was just phenomenal. I mean, you would you would literally not believe the, the level of detail that went into all of that stuff. You know, belt buckles, things that are never in a million years going to be seen on screen. But if you, were, if you were in the production, you could look at a belt battle and say, okay, that's orcish, um, that's, that's orcish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's that level of granular detail applied to everything, including all the fighting stars. Well, so that's what makes great art, isn't it? Yes, it was. Um, I'm not saying that what I did was necessarily great art, but that's what made some, some pretty great movies. Um, but my challenge really was to, was to adapt the aesthetics that were emerging from the other production departments into something that was a plausible fighting style or in some case series of fighting styles for each of these major cultures. So I worked with, I, don't, I can't even remember now the list, but but basically with um, with all of the cultures that are seen in mass battle in the movies. Um, Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I liked the Elvish style best, the Elvish two-handed sword, although unfortunately – um, but again, I, I need to stress what all of this was pre-production conceptual artwork, basically. 
Yeah. So the task was to devise the styles um, through all all manner. We did improvisation. We did sparring. We did um, character work as actors. All, all kinds mm-hmm. of things. Um, and then to train the stunt team. Um, iterations of the stunt team as people came and left. Um, in each of the styles, so we had you know the boot camps. We had the elf boot camp and the orc boot camp and so forth. I would love I to go to an elf boot camp. The Elf Boot Camp, again, was one of my favorites. The Elvis, I really love the Elvis stuff. Um, the Elvis stuff, it, and I, I think I mentioned this in one of the documentaries, one of the Lord of the Rings documentaries, but I, I'm not sure if it made it into the doc or not. But with the Elvis style, that was the only one where I felt like I wasn't creating something new, but rather rediscovering something that was very old. Okay. That was that was just the, the feeling um, of it. The, the vibe of it, yeah. Wow. Um, but so yeah, we we trained the stunt crew. We were working very extensively with at that point, both with the live action stunt people and also again with the motion capture people. Um, by the time actors started coming on board, that whole project was winding down because the design work was basically done. I did work with a couple of the actors who came on board early, but um, by the time the Live action production was in full swing. That uh, that was job over, and I was doing other things. Sure. Okay. So that, that sounds like a you talked yourself into a really really interesting job. Yeah. Again, just you know, right place, right time. <laughs> that's that's the foundation of most success, isn't it? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it, it really was. It was just it was a common it was circumstance. Okay, now part part of my job on this podcast is to keep an eye on the time, and I have signally failed to do that. And we are we are well past the appointed hour. So let me just say thank you very much, Tony, for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and um, I hope we can get together and chat again sometime soon, whether we record it or not. That would be my pleasure as well. Yeah, well, you know, we're all locked down, and we're all being very safe, and. The more of this sort of thing that happens, frankly, the better, as far as I'm concerned. The, you know, the I'm already doing a number of, of lectures and so on online. So um, the more, yeah, the more of that happens, the happier I think the world is. Excellent. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Tony Wolf. Remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes, which includes a picture of a tayaha and the video on suffragitsu that Tony made. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any video of an Uruk bench pressing a motorcycle, so you're just going to have to take his word for it. You will also, of course, be able to get your free copy of Sword Fighting for writers, game designers, and martial artists. Next week, we have Kendra Brown talking about translating Florius from the Latin and women in armor and things like that. You don't want to miss it. So remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to support the show, please go to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Patrons get access to the guest list in advance and can pose questions for me to ask the future guests when I interview them. And they also get access to the episode transcriptions, which are being processed at the moment. So thank you very much for listening. And I look forward to seeing you next week.